Let's begin uh, with chanting the refuges and precepts this evening. Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Buddhang saranang gachami, Dhammang saranang gachami, Sanghang saranang gachami, Dutiyampi buddhang saranang gachami, Dutiyampi dhammang saranang gachami, Dutiyampi sanghang saranang gachami Tatiyampi buddhang saranang gachami Tatiyampi dhammang saranang gachami Tatiyampi sanghang saranang gachami Anati pata veramani sikapadang samadhyami Adina dhana veramani sikapadang samadhyami Abrahmacharya veramani sikapadang samadhyami Musavada Veramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Sura Meraya Majapamadatana Veramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Vikala Bhojana Veramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Nadja Gita Vadita Visukadasana Malaganda Vilepana Dharana Mandana Vibhusanathana Veramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Uchasayana Mahasayana Veramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Idame Silam Magapalanyanasa Pachayohotu
I'm really struck every time we do that chanting together. The, uh, <clears throat> there's a power and beauty there that I find very inspiring that, you know, a group like this coming together to dedicated to living as harmlessly as possible. That's, that's rare and beautiful. And uh, I know I've said this before, but you know, if everyone in the world kind of even made sort of a half-hearted attempt to live by these precepts, we would have <coughs> a golden age in the world, isn't it? So it's no small thing and a beautiful thing to reflect on if you lose sight of any goodness you might have. Just think of that. Great goodness there. If we hang around places like IMS very much, we hear the word insight quite a bit. You know, this is the Insight Meditation Society. And the practice that most of us are doing is called Insight Meditation. And we might ask, you know, what is this? What exactly is this thing we call inside? What is that pointing at? You know, it's a common enough word. It gets used a lot, not only in places like this, but it's used all over. Common word in English. Sometimes I like to look words up in the dictionary to see what the definition is there. And I looked up inside. There are two definitions that are actually quite interesting. The first one is described as the power or act of seeing into a situation, kind of penetration. And the second definition is the act or result of apprehending the inner nature of things or of seeing intuitively. And there's a lot in those two definitions. And they point really quite directly to the nature of our practice here. Because in our practice, we do start to really see into the situation. And we do drop below, penetrate below the surface appearances of things. And what we're interested in is apprehending the inner nature of things. And the seeing or knowing that arises through our practice is on a very intuitive level. That's the level of the arising of of wisdom. And so this translation of the Pali word vipassana as insight is actually pretty good. And in the the Pali Text Society, uh, Pali English Dictionary, they add uh, the nuance of, of there being a quality of an inward vision and an introspection involved with this word vipassana. And so the, all of these, these definitions, these understandings point really to our practice because what we're interested in here is seeing directly into the nature of things below, beneath, penetrating beneath, dropping below the surface appearances. And we do this through the exploration of our own mind and body. That's the field of our exploration, you could say. And a lot of the time we we tend to live in the world of appearances in that realm, you could say, more on the surface of things and in the realm of concept. So with a lot of the world, that's how we, we live. 
And we often can take for granted that that's the whole picture, that that's all there is there. And you know, it's not that we would deny the reality of the conventional world and all that that encompasses. And, and we live in that way and we do do our best to care for the world, the conventional world, the world of concepts. And we live with as much integrity and grace as we can bring to bear in that. But if we make it the entirety of our reality, it's very limiting. It limits what we hold to be possible, it limits our potential. It's a, it's a limited way of seeing things. But with this practice, as we cultivate mindfulness, we connect directly with life free of that conceptual level, below that. And we touch the universe in a very direct way through this exploration of nature. We're just observing natural processes as they manifest in our mind and body. We're just seeing the nature of things below our concepts about it. And this exploration, we let go of everything we know. All of our ideas about the world, everything that we believe to be true about ourselves, about the world. But then we might ask ourselves the question, well, what, what is it? Just what am I supposed to be seeing here? You know, what is this, this insight? What is this inner nature of things? And our experience of something that we might call insight is quite different at different times. Different times in our practice, different ways that it appears to us, and it happens in different levels. And as our practice unfolds, it manifests in different ways. And we might hear ourselves say, I had a deep insight into something. We'll name something there. And in the in the individual meetings, you know, this, I hear this often. I had an insight into whatever it might be. And sometimes we, we do see into some patterns of conditioning. We may feel that we have seen deeply into some, some entrenched mental pattern, emotional pattern that has been playing out in our lives for a long time. And, and feel that we see into that some habitual way of reacting in the world and we feel like we have a, an understanding there, an insight into that. We might feel that we started to see into our fears, understand why they arise and see more deeply into some aspect of our emotional world. Maybe we uncover places where we've been feeling blocked or some numbness there some way that we feel we've been unable to connect with some part of our life, part of our experience. And we start to uncover something in that. Or we see ways that we, we tend to get caught in some aspect of our mental or emotional world. And we start to touch some freedom when we see into these patterns. There's some space and ease that starts to show up when we see this. And a lot of this kind of insight has to do with our personal psychology. We see into our inner world and, and what operates there, the forces that come to bear. And it can be very powerful at times, as I was saying. And, 
And in many ways, it's very essential part of our practice and part of a healthy life to, to start to see into these things. And it opens up a possibility that we can start undoing some habits of mind that may have driven our lives. And we start to understand our emotional world more completely. Things start to loosen up there. We see the forces that are operating, things that are very particular and personal to our own life, to our own inner world. It's very real and true and powerful. And then there's another aspect of insight that that in, in a way goes to the very heart of this practice and it touches on more universal kinds of understandings. It's a kind of insight that transcends what's personal to each one of us and touches that which is common to all of us. Insight that apprehends the inner nature of all things, this intuitive seeing in that definition of insight, an intuitive seeing into the the more subtle universal nature of all experience, true for any one of us, always true for all of us. And this is the kind of insight that the Buddha was pointing to in his teachings. And it's the kind of insight that the word vipassana refers to. And we begin to touch this kind of deeply intuitive seeing when there's a certain momentum that begins to come in our practice. And when the continuity of our mindfulness gets strong enough, continuous enough, that there's a certain kind of seclusion of mind and heart that begins to manifest. And the mind is at least to some extent secluded from the force, the influence of the hindrances. And we're no longer so much under assault by these difficult energies. Because there are times when the mind and heart feel like they are under attack. You know, we feel assailed by these difficult energies, by the armies of Mara, you could say. And it can feel like an assault at times. But then there are times when we feel some seclusion from that. When there is some stillness in the mind. And, and it's almost like there's a, um, almost like there's a bit of a, a barrier or something that keeps the hindrances at bay for a time. There's a kind of stability that comes in the practice when the mindfulness is continuous enough, there's enough momentum that the attention flows. The mindfulness starts to really flow. And there are two mental factors that begin to really become stronger at this point in time called initial and sustained application of mind. Sometimes they're called connecting and sustaining. The Pali words are vitaka and vichara. And when these factors become strong, the mind does settle into more of a kind of stability where it tends to rest, to settle more easily on whatever the object of our attention might be in the moment. And when it does get pulled out or lost in experience, and this still happens, of course, it tends to come back to this resting stability more easily. It's as if it's drawn back into connection with experience, with the object of attention. 
And one way we might see how these factors operate, come into play, is, is in terms of the initial contact with anything that comes up in experience. You know, our attention is drawn to something. Maybe you could say like a sensation in the body or a sound that arises. There's that initial sound. Let's say the striking of the bell, ring the bell. There's the initial sound. And then there's the sustaining with the vibration there as it continues. We see what happens to that. We see how it changes. So this kind of, of initial and sustained, this connecting and sustaining can become strong when our attention is with a single object, like our anchor, say with the breath, hearing, the body, or with changing objects, a more choiceless kind of awareness where the connecting and sustaining happen in a very momentary way. They connect, connect over and over. There's still that quality of connecting and sustaining there. It can be with changing objects. It can even be with the quality of awareness itself. And whatever the object, the key is this continuity of mindfulness, whether with one object or with changing objects. And when there is some cultivation and strengthening of these factors and the mind does become secluded to some extent from the hindrances, then there's an important shift that starts to really happen in our practice where we start to very directly experience the three universal characteristics, common characteristics of everything, of all phenomena. The characteristics of anicca, dukkha, and anatta, which you've heard, we've been talking about these pretty much the whole retreat, isn't it? In his book, In This Very Life, uh, the teacher Sayada Upandita offers a, he kind of elaborates the definition of the word vipassana in a way that sheds some light on this, these understandings, how they manifest directly in our experience and in our meditation. He says this, the word vipassana has two parts, vi and pasana. Vi or we refers to various modes and pasana is seeing. Thus one meaning of vipassana is seeing through various modes. These various modes, of course, are those of impermanence, suffering, and absence of self. A more complete translation of vipassana now becomes seeing through the modes of impermanence, suffering, and absence of self. So you could say that what we start to do, we start to see or look at our experience through through these lenses, through the lenses of impermanence, through the lens of unsatisfactoriness, through the lens of not-self, of corelessness. We use that as a, a way of looking at experience through those qualities. And you know, we talk about these, we've been talking about these a lot. You hear about them over and over. And we may think, well, we know, we understand that. We've heard teachings, we understand what these are pointing to. 
But often what happens is that we, we take them on as a kind of philosophical stance or as a kind of belief or a Buddhist tenet that we have adopted. But in our practice, especially when this continuity of mindfulness is really strong, then there's this direct knowing, this direct experiencing of this, these truths. We see them arising and playing out very directly in our own experience. It's not something that we, we take on because it's, it's a Buddhist understanding that we're supposed to know. We see them directly in our own body and mind. And they can show up in various ways. The experience of impermanence, for example. Sometimes it's really obvious, sometimes it's more subtle. You know, we could bring our attention to the changing postures of the body. You know, if we look, we're changing postures throughout the day. I mean, this is really obvious, isn't it? It's, it's nothing arcane or, or hard to see there. You know, maybe during the sitting practice, we're kind of stable for a while. But the rest of the time, there's this constant shifting and moving as we change postures. You know, we sit, we stand, we walk, we recline. We do everything in between those postures. And this mindfulness of this, this is described in the first, uh, in the Satipatthana Sutta, and as part of the first establishment of mindfulness, this kaya nupasana, mindfulness of the body. This is one of the ways one knows the postures of the body. And you know, this is, it's a mundane everyday experience. It's nothing esoteric there, but the Buddha used these kinds of experiences as vehicles to point to uh, profound understandings, to lead us to something really profound. You know, a very simple aspect of experience like changing body postures can lead us to seeing the truth of impermanence. We see it's true, it's always changing. And seeing this leads us to relinquishment to a kind of letting go. And from that we gain freedom. We can see impermanence manifesting in our experience of the breath. Many of us are using the breath as a kind of anchor. We're spending a lot of time there. We've seen a lot of breaths over the course of the retreat. Again, this is part of this teaching on the first foundation of mindfulness. But then we start to see, well, each breath is different from each other one, different from the previous one. They may be long or short, shallow or deep, coarse or fine, gross or subtle. They're always changing there. Each one is different. And with these factors of of connecting and sustaining this application of mindfulness in this way, we get very close to the breath. And sometimes our attention is just resting right within the breath. And we see each one is totally unique. There's nothing but change there. We can get so close to it that we begin to see subtle changes just within each part of the breath, within an in-breath or an out-breath. At times we get so close that, that the, the idea of breath drops away altogether. And it's just this process of changing sensations. We can see impermanence in terms of sensations in the body, the shifting dance of the elements, 
arising and passing. One sensation arises and immediately another one there. Hardness, softness, heat, coolness, tension, pressure, vibration. Just one after the other. And if we look closely, what in there is even remotely impermanent? There's nothing in there that lasts. It's this shifting flow and, and the concept of body can, can fall away at times, doesn't it? It's just this shifting dance of elements, arising, passing. We can see the impermanent nature of thoughts and thinking. And when we turn our attention to that, it's so insubstantial, this mental energy, so fleeting. They're just pulses of energy. They rise and pass. And yet they have such power, you know, we create whole worlds in the mind. We get lost in them, caught in the story, the drama that might arise there. And then it falls away. Where were we? What was that? That world we inhabited for that time, it seems so real. And then it's gone. It doesn't last. We start to see the truth of dukkha, the noble truth of dukkha, when when the mindfulness is strong in this way and connecting and sustaining are strong. We see this unreliable, unsatisfactory nature of all of our experience, of everything that arises. And sometimes in our practice, it can feel like this is all we're seeing. Sometimes it shows up as, as just one unpleasant, painful feeling after another, burning, itching, hardness. Times we can get very interested in these sensations, even if they're strong and unpleasant and difficult. We can stay with them and observe them for, for a time. And, and if we do so, we see that they're not solid, that they're also in a constant state of change. You know, heat may arise and then it transforms into pressure and then throbbing, pulsing. And that changes its texture and its shape and its intensity can disappear and come back. It may break up and go away altogether for no apparent reason. But it can be difficult when we're seeing into the truth of this unsatisfactory, unreliable nature of things. You know, we see it in terms of the body, the mind, the heart. It feels like there's nothing there that we can turn to for any kind of satisfaction. None of it seems reliable. It's not dependable. Even things that we usually enjoy, they lose their reliability, their dependability when we're seeing this truth of dukkha really clearly. Sometimes we feel this most clearly when objects are passing away. There's no reliability there. They're constantly dissolving. There's no refuge to be found. And sometimes we feel that that our practice has gone off track, that something's wrong. There's no satisfaction anywhere. And we need to really remind ourselves, it's helpful to to remind ourselves that, that we're seeing this truth of dukkha, we're opening to this, seeing this noble truth directly in our moment to moment experience, that there's nothing wrong, that it's not a mistake. And, and that the experience of dukkha is itself dukkha, 
you know, it's, it's unsatisfying in and of itself. You know, we don't want it to be that way. We want it to be more fun somehow. <laughs> but it's, Dukkha's kind of a drag and seeing it is, is also kind of a drag. <laughs> At times it's, it's can really not be a lot of fun. But we need to remember that opening to this truth that there's a, a reason, it's a good reason. It's an essential part of the path. It's the heart of the path. So this goes to the heart of the noble truths, understanding this. You know, and it really leads to deconditioning our tendency to grasp and hold on to experience. You know, we feel this dukkha and we want to naturally let go. You know, if we open to dukkha and then we see the cause of it. It's holding on, this grasping, this clinging. We see that and we, the mind starts to let go. We start to touch and directly see this truth of anatta, this coreless, uncontrollable nature of all things. We see this directly for ourselves. We see that there's nothing in this flow of experience that is, is controllable, that's amenable to our will that we can make be the way we want it to be. We can't make things be how we want them to be. We can't have it go the way we want just by wishing or by some act of will. We try this, don't we try it? We try it over and over, it doesn't work. You know, we say, let me only have pleasant feelings in this body. Let me have only peaceful thoughts and really groovy mental states. (laughs) Or, or, you know, let me have no thoughts at all. Good luck. It doesn't happen. I mean, we're still holding out hope, aren't we? Be able to to get it to be quiet in there. You know, we're minding our own business. Everything's going along. And then just out of nowhere, the theme song from some silly TV show that we saw in our childhood. A horse is a horse, of course, of course. <laughs> and no one can talk to a horse. Of course. Okay, you have to be kind of my age and grown up in America to get that. Oh, Wilbur. <laughs> you know, or, or we're watching reruns of My Favorite Martian. Or Leave it to Beaver, you know. We, we didn't, did we ask these things happen to me? Kind of recently, let me tell you, this is, this is a recent experience of mine. You know, did we ask for that? Did we, did we make that happen? You know, is there any way that we can say that we're in control of that? You know, this body, this mind, they follow their own rules, don't they? Things unfold according to their own nature in this mind and body and heart. When the continuity of our mindfulness is strong, we start to notice the relationship of, of what's called mentality and materiality, namarupa in Pali, mind and matter, you could say. You know, we see there are physical sensations that arise in the body. It's materiality manifesting in physicality of the body and these elements arising, we see that. And then there's the mind knowing that. And we start to see that these are distinct and separate aspects of experience. 
that one arises in response to the other. There's this feeling in the body, sensation there, and the mind knows it. We see they're not the same thing. And when we see this really clearly, then it points to this cause and effect, how that operates and manifests in this process of mind and body. Because of the sensations arising, then the knowing arises. You know, we might see this clearly in our experience of hearing. There's sound arising, this contact at the ear door, and hearing consciousness arises. Ring the bell again. There's the contact and the knowing just happens. Mind and matter. We might notice intention, this volition, intention in the mind. Intention arises, the intention to move, for example. The intention arises as we're paying attention to the changing postures of the body, for example, we see the intention to move. And then the body shifts posture as a result of that. We see that in a way our experience is just this flow of cause and effect. Because of this, then that. It's not that we're controlling it and making it happen just happens on its own. We might connect to this truth of not self through the perception of change itself. We see change really closely in the ways that I was talking about. And we see that there's nothing that lasts long enough to be called a self in that. It's just this flow of change. What in there lasts long enough that we would say that's, that's a self or a core or something that permanent that lasts? And maybe we could take, suggested this to some people, take a period of time where we let go of every kind of doing. We really let go of anything that we might call our practice. You know, just drop the notion of, of what we're, You know, we talk about we're working with this or working with that. Just let go of that. Just go from doing to being. Just sit without doing anything at all. It's the hardest kind of practice probably. But if we do this, we just let go of everything in that way. What happens? Does experience stop? Does our life this flow of life, does that come to a halt? If we just don't do anything, it doesn't. It still keeps happening. You know, and there's nothing really that we need to do about any of it. You know, we can sit back, relax, and not hold on. That's what we do. It just comes and goes by itself. It can be interesting to notice those times when the feeling of self arises. 
some way that in a moment we get identified with part of our experience. And this feeling of self arises. It's born in that moment. You know, for myself, I've, I see this really strongly when I go into the dining room and get in the lunch line. It's a great place to watch this self come into being. You know, we're cruising along. It's just we're with the flow of arising and passing sensations and empty phenomena rolling on. And then we step into the lunch line and, whoa, there we are. Biggest life, twice as real. (laughs) You know, the self takes birth in that moment. Feels really strong, you know, in this sense of being someone in relation to everyone else and this self-consciousness may be really strong there. And then, then just as suddenly at another time it falls away. You know, it's not always there. Take a look. Take a look when you go through the day and see. Is it always there? It's not always there. It comes into being. It gets constellated out of some contact with some experience, identification with that in some way. And then it comes, that feeling of self arises there. And you know, it's important to, to remember, I think we forget about this, but seeing this, these truths, the unfolding of that in our experience, it's not all that clear to us in the moment. A lot of the time we're seeing this in a way, but it's coming in through our cells or our bones or in some, some way that we, we might not notice in the moment. We might not see that this process of seeing into anicca, dukkha, and anatta is happening in the moment. So really remember this, it's important because we, we think it should be clear and obvious to us all the time and it's not. You know, from the, from the middle of our meditation, our retreat, it's, ha- it's hard to know what's going on and it's really important because we have such a tendency to evaluate and to judge, to judge our practice from within it. It's very tempting to do this. We, we do it, we get caught in that. But we really have no idea. And our assessment is almost always gonna be wrong. And really all we have to do is just stay steady. Keep the mindfulness flowing. Keep the momentum going with, with a gentle persistence. Just the willingness, just come back. Just come back. Just right now, just this because we don't know what's going on. And there's ways that we're learning things and learning about these truths that, that we'll never, we won't see until maybe we reflect on it later or we notice that the effect of that is, has manifested in our lives in some way. Something has fallen away. We couldn't say when that understanding came. You know, there's this description, I think it's from Suzuki Roshi of, of what the practice is like and I've, I've mentioned this to a number of people in individual meetings. He said, if you go outside and it's raining, pouring rain, and you stand in that, you just get soaking wet, and you know it. 
you're soaked. If you take a walk in a heavy fog for an hour, you're going to get just as wet, but you won't notice it at any point along the way. You won't say, you, you just at some point you say, oh, I'm, I'm wet, but you didn't feel it happening so much. And in many ways, the practice is more like that, walking in the fog. We don't notice it along the way, but then we see things have changed. And as our practice continues and this momentum gets really, really strong and and less and less effort is required, little or no effort at a certain point, practice starts to, to do itself. It feels like it's doing itself. And these factors of connecting and sustaining, they start to diminish in importance. They don't, they aren't so evident. We see these, these characteristics of anicca, dukkha, anatta, whether we're aware of it or not, there's a way that we're seeing them. And there's a natural arising of a kind of joy that can come, a subtle kind of joyful interest. And there's part of us that feels that we're seeing the truth in some really deep way that we're connecting to a kind of, a timeless kind of universal truth and understanding that, that this is how things are, how they've always been, how they always will be. It's not time bound, this understanding. It's a kind of joyful interest and it can become really strong at times. It can bring a lot of energy, kind of excitement. Sometimes a lot of what are called Dhamma thoughts start thinking about this process and get very caught in this world of our thoughts because it's, it it's very compelling understanding that comes then and it, we can get seduced by these Dhamma thoughts. And sometimes there's a lot of ease in the body that comes at this time and these light, pleasant feelings, pleasant and easy mind states. And these can seduce us as well. And, we can get caught by it. This joyful interest gets strong, the might becomes bright and clear and quite flexible and malleable. We see that things are changing very quickly. We can follow that quick change, rising and passing, appearing, disappearing. And sometimes our perception of change becomes really, really fine. And experience seems to pass, objects seems to arise, seem to arise and pass more quickly than we can keep up with. It can be kind of dizzying, disconcerting at times. This flow of change, it's like a rushing stream and we can't keep up with the rate of it. And when mindfulness is really continuous and sharp at this time, thinking tends to diminish. There can be little or no discursive thinking. Thoughts may come and and arise at times, but they're quite fleeting. They seem to disappear before they're even complete sometimes, before they're fully there. And there's more space in the heart and the mind, and this joy can get really strong. Faith and ease begin to show up a lot. Some people There's a perception for some people of light in the mind. Mind feels luminous, bright. Concentration deepens, the mindfulness becomes quite precise and there's a kind of, this kind of verified faith that I spoke about earlier in an earlier talk starts to show up. 
because we're seeing into the truth of things for ourselves directly. And there's a confidence that the practice is leading onward, onward leading kind of practice. And we taste directly fruits of the practice and the faith is verified and it becomes strong. And we start to see that the path is not about, just about having good feelings. It's not about the particular experience, not about having a particular experience at all. You know, and up to this point, there's a way in which we may have been practicing in order to have a special experience or to get some kind of special mind state to come about. We start to see that the path is about freedom in any moment, freedom in the moment, regardless of what might be happening. This is real freedom. This is true freedom. Freedom about non-clinging in the moment. That's the freedom the Buddha was pointing to. Non-clinging to any state, no matter how beautiful, sublime, pleasant. We need to see these beautiful, pleasant states, states of strong faith, of, of rapture or calm tranquility. We need to see that they are impermanent also because we can get to a place when things are really going well like this where we, it's called stopping within. We feel like, well, it's, this is really great. This must be the end of the path. So it's, we, need to, we need to note even these really help, beautiful, wholesome states like calm and joy. Really, sometimes it's helpful to name them, turn our attention to them really, really directly. See that they're impermanent also. And if we stay steady, then this intense kind of joy, this really strong, joyful interest, it starts to fade a bit and there's this sweeter, happy contentment that starts to come up in our mind, in our heart, and a strong balance of mind. And these enlightenment factors of calm and concentration and of equanimity, these begin to strengthen, to really get developed. And we notice that the mind holds unpleasant and un- unpleasant and pleasant objects, both of them with ease. There's a deep kind of contentment that can come at times. A more subtle, sweet happiness of peace and comfort. And as we continue to notice the rising, passing, change of flow of objects in our experience, sometimes the beginning and middle parts become less distinct. There's a point where we start to notice the endings of things more clearly. And and we get to where we see only the endings of things. We start to perceive this continuous dissolution of phenomena. And it seems like things are disappearing as soon as we notice them. We just notice them falling away. That's what we see is that disappearing. Sometimes it seems as if our body is is just not there at all. All we see is this flow of sensations continually falling away, falling away. And it can be kind of difficult at this time. We can get worried because this happy comfort, we may have been there, that starts to disappear. 
And this this dissolution, this falling away, this disappearance of things, it can be disconcerting. You know, it seems that before we see the next object, it's already gone. It's already gone. And there's another one going, going. And the concepts that we've held on to start to become less distinct, may disappear at times, you know, head, body, arm, leg, start to fall away. And it's difficult to say where anything is happening. Can't pin it down. We just see it's all dissolving, it's all disappearing. And we can feel like our practice is just falling apart. You know, it's out of control and there's nowhere we can stand there. It can be scary a little bit. But eventually we find some ease even with this dissolution, this falling away. We can relax, we just settle back into that flow. But the strong ease and happiness tends to disappear and and things get to a more neutral feeling tone, more neutral kind of feeling tone can prevail. And at times painful feelings can reappear as well. But if we just stay steady, just keep, keep coming back, keep, keep the mindfulness going, keep it flowing, then this factor of equanimity starts to really strengthen. And this function it has of bringing balance to the mind gets really strong and powerful. And Winnie spoke about this really beautifully last night, how this quality of equanimity becomes strong and it gets very strong. It becomes a great kind of balance of mind and heart when he named it as high equanimity sometimes. It's called equanimity, high equanimity or equanimity regarding formations. And because it arises at all of the six sense stars, it's there at every aspect of our experience. It's called, sometimes it's called six-limbed equanimity because it's at all of the sense stars. And this is a really subtle and deep level and where our practice starts to go really smoothly in a way. The mindfulness is very agile, very malleable mind and heart. And the mind isn't moved by pleasant or unpleasant feelings. And there's no real chance for attachment or aversion aversion to arise. They just don't come. They just don't have any place to land at that time. And the awareness can, can get really subtle. Movement of the breath, sensations of the body, they can appear as just a fine vibration. Sometimes they, they break up into a mist of fine particles almost. And sometimes the breath can almost seem to disappear. And then just the knowing mind, the knowing mind itself is the object of our meditation. It's the object of awareness. That's the most obvious thing, consciousness, the knowing mind. And then at times that can seem to flicker, to arise and pass. In the, in the state of extreme mental balance, it's said to be similar to the mind of an arahant, similar to the mind of a fully awakened being, a mind that's unshakable in the face of experience. <clears throat> it's a kind of perfect equipoise, you could say. And it's, it's beautifully expressed in, in this description of the, the Buddha to be, the Bodhisattva on the night of his awakening, enlightenment. 
on the, the Bodhisattva was sitting under the Bodhi tree and he was assailed by the armies of Mara, all the weapons and the seductions and the, finally the, the weapon, the uh, army Mara appearing as doubt. You know, who are you? What gives you the right to sit here? And the description is that the great one's mind was not moved. It wasn't moved by any of it. It's incredible balance of mind, of heart there. And it's this exquisite balance, this incredible stillness and clarity, is when he was saying last night, this is what prepares the heart, the mind, the heart, to let go into the unconditioned let go and realize and realize the peace of Nibbana from this place of great balance of heart and mind. This is from uh, another <clears throat> quotation from Mei Chi Gao, the Tai Nan. I read a quotation from her in another talk. Said to be a fully enlightened nun in Thailand. She said this, in a perfectly still, crystal clear pool of water, we can see everything with clarity. The heart at complete rest is still. When the heart is still, wisdom appears easily, fluently. When wisdom flows, clear understanding follows. The world's impermanent, unsatisfactory, insubstantial nature is seen in a flash of insight, and we become fed up with our attachment to this mass of suffering and loosen our grip. In that moment of coolness, the fires in our heart abate while freedom from suffering arises naturally of its own accord. This transformation occurs because the original mind is, by its very nature, absolutely pure and unblemished. Purity is its normal state. So I'll end this evening with uh, an excerpt from <clears throat> The Four Quartets by T.S. Eliot from Little Gidding. It'll be familiar to some of you. We shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Through the unknown, unremembered gate when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning. At the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall, and the children in the apple tree, not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard, in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick now, here, now, always, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. So we have the best part of the talk now where we sit quietly and let these words disappear.
That's where the real teaching is. May the merit of our practice, this great goodness of our practice be for the benefit of all beings. May this merit be dedicated to the happiness, to the welfare and the liberation of all beings everywhere. Thank you for your kind attention. And there's some time now for walking meditation and chanting at 915. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.